This is 15 Minutes of Freedom. I'm your host, Ryan Idell, and today I have a special guest all the way from Salt Lake City, Utah, John Madsen. John, how are you today? I'm doing great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Truly honored. I'm humbled. I'm flattered. It's not every day I get to talk to a retired NFL star such as yourself, so I appreciate it. Oh, yeah, man. I, I, I don't know if I'd say that I was a star, but I did make it, so I'm proud of that. Did you, did you physically play on a Sunday? I did, man. I did. I scored a couple touchdowns and lived my dream. To me, you're a star then. Like, I don't know anybody else I've spoken to that scored touchdowns in the NFL. So congratulations for that. Thank you, man. Thank you. But John, your tra- trajectory to get the NFL was not traditional in any stretch of the imagination, right? I mean, you, you didn't play football in high school at all, did you? I didn't, dude. I, I, uh, I love sports. I was an athlete growing up. It was, it was what me and my family did. My dad coached me in a lot of different sports. I played football from the time I was eight years old um, and was good at it. But um, going into high school, I remember this really distinct moment that, that almost seems like yesterday. I was in ninth grade going into 10th grade, and it was mandatory then to start working out at the high school. And so one of the first days, first days of summer, I went with a group of five of my friends, went into the weight room, saw a bunch of seniors throwing weights around. Um, I had never really thought about lifting weights until that, up until that moment. And, you know, like all high school strength coaches, the first thing we did was get our maxes on bench squat and, and uh, deadlift. So um, we hopped down on the bench press, me and five of my friends. And I remember 95 pounds just crushing my crush come crushing down on my chest and I was the only one out of the five that couldn't bench press 95 pounds and up until that point I thought that I was probably a better athlete than all of my friends but I was so embarrassed from from that day that I I really realized all in one moment that I was scrawny I was tall and lanky and I went home to my parents and was like dad I need to I need to work out with you like I want to I want to train and I don't want to go back to the school and train with my friends until I'm stronger than them. So it really affected my confidence for a little bit. And I went back a couple more days and then went home one day and told my parents that I wasn't going to play football anymore. And truth was, I was scared. I was scared that I was going to get hurt. I was scared that I was weak. But what I did was have this huge desire to be strong and powerful. I, I realized that that's what I wanted to represent. And that whole reason put me on this path of I I worked with a local strength coach I put on a bunch of muscle I got stronger I got more athletic but I never returned to the high school football field I was a 6'4 kid I graduated high school at about 185 pounds which was a big improvement from the 140 that I started at but I I had this dream to be a professional athlete I just thought I was going to do it in basketball or baseball and never went back to football so um strength and conditioning fueled my passion and ultimately was the stepping stone to, to reaching the NFL. But, um, I was scared to play football in high school, so I never played. Well, John, I, I love the fact you're, you're bringing this up so candidly because for me, I'm, I'm not six, four, right? I was six. I am six, two. I graduated high school at six, two, but for me, I had a comparable story, right? I was six, two, maybe 145 pounds, was thrown in the weight room as a freshman in, in high school. And I hit my growth spurt so late in life, right? Like my maturity level, I can laugh in this. I don't know if my balls dropped until I was a senior in high school, right? Like I'm, I'm open right. with this. I don't know when it came, but it certainly didn't happen, you know, freshman or sophomore year. 
And so instead of you, like how you leaned into the gym, I did everything I could to avoid the gym, right? I still, I still played the football, like the football. I still, I still played football and, and loved it, but hated getting hit, hated the, the contact, right? Was on the offensive side of the ball. But so interesting how our psyches work, right? Where you were presented with a challenge and from, to me, it sounds like the way your family's wired, that the example that your father put forth through you, some of the things that combined to make you who you are, you drove right into it and wanted to maximize your potential as far as it came to strength and, and weight training and, and being powerful, as you said. Where with with me, it was the polar opposite, right? It's like, I want to retreat. I want to be hidden until I can figure out how to how to lift weights and not, not be ridiculed, really, because... I mean, I was just laughed at, right? I don't, I don't know if you were or not, but you know, my, I had big legs and a, a big ass, right? I, so I had a powerful bottom half. But John, I, I don't think I graduated high school being able to bat, bench press 155 pounds, right? I, I don't know that I was there or not. Yeah, no, no, dude, I was the same way. I, I don't think I had a hair under my armpit till I was a senior. You know, like it was, it was the same thing. And I, I don't know that I leaned into it. To be honest, I, I don't know. It, it could have been like, I wanted to get more girls or what, you know how it is when you're, when you're, you're the weakest one. Like, I think there's an inherent desire for most boys to be that alpha, right? We want to be that alpha. We just don't, I realized that I wasn't. And so I didn't want to go back into that high school weight room again until I wasn't embarrassed because I was truly embarrassed. And so I went home to my dad, he bought a bench press and a set. We started working out together. And the thing that I really appreciate. And I still tell him to this day, like we have one of the best relationships with my, you know, with my parents, he, he helped me until he couldn't help me anymore. And then he got me a trainer so that I could train one-on-one with this guy who was a powerlifting guy. He just beat the shit out of me for, for months and months. And, you know, I don't know that I liked it, but I liked the feeling that I could see the improvement. And, you know, my parents didn't have all the means in the world to be spending that on a personal trainer, but they did it. And it completely changed my life. So, John, back then, like I remember when I first found like creatine monohydrate was going to solve everything. So, like, found oh, yeah. creatine, the, the the disgusting tasting whey protein, right? Like the Metrex stuff that was like it. It literally was like concrete. Like it was horrible. In a tin can, man. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I wasn't alone in the, in that series of uh, poor decisions, if you will. You you were supplementing legally, of course, right? Back then, I, I openly share. There was no anabolics. Had someone presented to me anabolics as a sophomore in high school, I 100% would have said yes to mask my insecurities, right? That's that's why I realize now from my perspective, that's why I did it for so many years, was not because I wanted to be bigger and better than other people. It was so I stopped feeling like I was the smallest. It was this whole other whole other thing. I didn't want to get picked on anymore, so I just figured I'll just keep getting big and, and strong until people stop picking on me. But forgetting all that stuff, you, you were taking creatine and – the tin can proteins and all the good stuff. Oh yeah, dude. Like, I mean, that was the time when Mark McGuire had Androstein in his locker room. And so I had no idea what this was, but I'd read every muscle magazine, Bill Phillips and the EAS deal like that. My dad got into that, did the body transformation. This whole thing started right around the same time. So my dad was down in protein shakes. Me and my buddies would, you know, if we'd go to the gym and then we'd come home and throw down protein. I still remember one of my buddies, drinking it my dad made him a shake he he started drinking it and was throwing up in the sink like this stuff was nasty back then but creatine we we found some stuff because they sold it at gnc androstein because mark mcguire took it i'm sorry i see you so um we I, i remember taking androstein with one of my buddies and then we saw in the newspaper 
there was an article about two high school boys. One got testicular cancer. And in there, it said something about Androstein. So I remember selling mine to, to my friend. I was too scared to take it. But I didn't know anything about any of this stuff. It was just like this quest to be strong and powerful, man. Just try to be bigger. Well, I love that. And John, we haven't touched base on this, but do you have children now? I do. I just had a first. My firstborn is a. She's going to turn one in a week. It's been the best year of my life. Okay, because I was going to ask is, as you have this, you know, love of awareness and perspective from what you've been through, what you're going to pass on to the next generation, right? When do you inter- introduce them to the weight room? How do you navigate them through the waters of not having some of those insecurities, right? That that guided a lot of our decisions. It sounds like. And obviously with her, with her just being born, it's a little early maybe, but maybe it's coming to your mind at some point. Well, it's, she's a girl. She's a girl, and she just has my whole heart. It's been, you know, the best, the best day of my life was, was her birth. Me and my wife went through three failed IVFs. You know, I'm 35 years old, so we waited. You know, I waited a little bit longer than some people to have a kid, and there was a point where I didn't know that I was going to have that experience. Me and my wife were married, and, you know, we didn't know. We kept failing during the IVF, she was going through a lot and it was trying. And I know there's a ton of people out there probably going through that type of stuff and not to get off topic, but, um, I had to come to come to grips with the fact that, you know, maybe, maybe I wasn't going to be a father and I really wanted to be, but, um, we never gave up, man. And, and the birth of my daughter is, has just been a blessing. And so I hope she wants to play sports, but I don't care what she wants to do. I just want to support her. And to answer your question, just helping her. And if I do have a son later on or another daughter, just having them truly love themselves and be being strong. And I think that the one thing in life that if I could choose one thing that can help anybody, it's having that unshakable confidence and learning how to develop it for, for the last 10 years, I've coached high school athletes. So probably a hundred of them have gotten, um, college scholarships. So my whole, my whole gym was based on getting high school kids and training them so that they could get scholarships in high school. And I just see like how, how the training and how the weight room can enhance confidence. I, I knew that because it worked on me. So I knew when I was done playing in the NFL that if I could affect kids, that that's, that's what I wanted to do. And so when you see confidence grow in teenagers, it's just this amazing thing. And so as a dad, like I'm always going to protect that. I'm always going to be very cognizant of where her confidence is at and why and how to develop it. And, you know, they live in a different world now with social media and bullying and all the comments and popularity contests with how many followers and things. So she's so young. I have no idea what the world's going to look like, but I do know that I'm going to protect that confidence and I'm going to show her how to develop it as best as I possibly can. Well, I absolutely love that, John. And I, I also love the fact that you said, you know, basically don't ever give up with something, I don't say as simple, right? But something is what should be simple for us is getting our significant other pregnant, right? Like don't give up on something like that. And that's like this underlying current for your entire life from the perspective that I have for, because, you know, you didn't give up in high school. You put on the weight, you put on the size, you didn't play a, a down of football in a, in a high school career. But then for some reason you decided to walk onto a junior college, Right. Like what's that transition? Right. You no football at all. You're you're big now. You're tall. You're obviously athletic. And then it's just you wake up one day, you stretch your arm and say, you know what? I'm going to try to walk on a junior football team today. No, no, man. So basketball was my thing. I was six, four, obviously. So kind of tall, but in basketball world, not that tall. Um, 
I gra- like I said, I graduated at 185. And in my brain, I wanted to be a professional athlete. That was it. Like that was, that was the thing. And I know that because in seventh grade, we had this, with, with this random assignment where we'd have to go to the computer lab and for a whole week answer questions on a scale of one to 10. What, what answer, answering questions, what we would like to do with our career so that we could then go talk to our counselor and he would put us into the right classes just forward thinking about what we wanted to do. So after the computer printed out our top 10 career choices that we could consider, we should consider, we were supposed to choose two of them and then go talk to our counselor. As you can imagine, professional, professional athlete was not on the list, you know, that the computer wasn't going to say anything about that. So I remember just writing it in choice A, professional athlete, choice B, professional athlete, I got called into the counselor's office. And he was like, look, John, I still remember like this day too, because he was a huge Broncos fan, which is ironic because I played for the Raiders and, you know, played against them in the end. But he sat me down and his job was to at least make me choose something different for career choice number two. You know, he, he rolled out the stats less than, you know, 3% of high school athletes will play division one sports, blah, blah, blah. That was the first time I felt like an adult was, was telling me that I couldn't accomplish something that I really wanted to do. My parents always were in my corner saying, whatever you want to do, you can do, John. Just believe in yourself, right? And so I left that meeting feeling really frustrated. But it just, there was this thing where being a professional athlete was what I wanted to do. And so even though I didn't play football, I did play basketball and baseball. From working with that shrink coach, I went from barely being able to dunk a basketball to doing 360s. So I was very, very athletic. My basketball team in my high school career, my junior year I started, we went zero and 20, so we didn't win a game. And then my senior year, we went one and 19. So there was no state playoffs. We, I went one and 39. Not a single player on that team got a college scholarship. There was no scouts there. So I was sitting at graduation thinking that I'm still going to be an athlete. I'm just going to go walk on somewhere. So the only school that was going to accept me, I got good grades, but I was, I was awaiting a scholarship that never came. So I didn't apply to a bunch of schools. There's a junior college about two hours from Salt Lake City. And that was the school that I applied to and got accepted to. So that was where I was going to go. So um, during my little tour, my, my freshman tour, me and my father went up there. I had a VHS tape of my height of my basketball because I was going to go talk to the basketball coach. So I knocked on his door, sat in there, tried to hand him my basketball tape. And he said, look, John, I don't know you. I'm sure you can play basketball, but my roster's full. We're not going to take a single walk on this year because we don't have room for them. So if you want to play basketball, I just want to tell you and be upfront that it doesn't matter how talented you are. I don't have a place for you. So I couldn't even get that shot. And my dad looked at me and was like, now what, you know, now what are you going to do? And I remember feeling that I'm not done being an athlete yet. I have a lot, I have a lot of ability still left in me. So all in one moment, I looked at him and said, look, let's go talk to the football coaches. I know that I can play wide receiver without playing for three years. Like I had, I did develop that confidence. Like I know I can be a pretty good receiver. And he looked at me and was like, okay. Like he looked at me like I was kind of crazy too in that moment. But we took that basketball film, went to the football coach's office. I sat down in front of two coaches and was like, 
I really think I can play wide receiver. And, you know, if you want to see my basketball film, it'll at least show you my athleticism. All I, I remember saying these exact words. All I'm asking for is a shot. If I suck, you can cut me, but I just want a shot to, to try out. And they saw a six foot four kid, pretty scrawny still, but said, yeah, absolutely. You can try out. You know, there's a lot of kids that try out. So I was, I was just one out of probably 60 other guys that were going to try out to be a walk-on. And uh, after two weeks of the tryouts, they sat me down in, in the office and said, you have so much raw ability. You have to stop thinking about basketball, put your all into football, get bigger and stronger. And there's no telling how far you can take this thing. So from that moment on, man, it was all football. I love that. I love that. I love the fact that junior college prepped you for the next step, right? And the next step is, is near and dear to my heart living here in Columbus, Ohio. Re- regretfully, the great leader at uh, the Ohio State University has stepped down and will become the assistant athletic director, whatever his position is. But Urban Meyer, you know, he ended up playing an integral role in that next evolution, right? Because you played one full season. Or did you even play a full season? Or did you, 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 did you excel even quicker than that? So I actually redshirted because I had no idea how to read a defense. I was like, I, I, my last football experience was Little League. So I, I redshirted my sophomore year. I mean, my, my freshman year. And then I played my, my redshirt freshman year at that junior college and then left to play for the University of Utah. Yeah, and that was much the same, right? Did you literally walk in? You had to walk on and walk into the Utes. Dude, it's, this is kind of an underlying story of my life and something that I like to share to people because I never waited for permission, right? Like sometimes now I have this imposter syndrome where I, where I think that I don't, I, I shouldn't do something because I'm not qualified or whatever, right? And we talked a little bit about that before the show about the podcast. And back then that didn't creep up for whatever reason, or I, or I just kind of shoved it down because I was really unhappy with how my freshman year went. I, I didn't feel that I played as much um, as I should have. Looking back, I just, the coaches didn't trust me enough with the playbook and there was a lot more that I could do. But back then I was like, man, I'm, I'm better than the guys that are playing in front of me. Like, I'm going to leave this school. I'm going to go big time. And big time to me was the University of Utah, you know, 30 minutes from my house. It's where I grew up watching games. And there was this guy, Urban Meyer, who had just taken, just taken over, left from Bowling Green. And it was his first year. I read this article in the paper where he was complaining about the talent at wide receiver, saying that that was going to be the demise of the University of Utah as they don't have any talent at wide receiver. So I'm like, man, I went home. I drove home one weekend and I had some highlights again on a VHS tape from my junior college. And I drove straight to the University of Utah's football offices unannounced and walked in there, didn't know where I was going. And the secretary is like, can I help you? And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm here to talk to one of the wide receiver coaches. I play at Snow College, and I'd really just want to see what my options are. And they're like, okay, hold on one second. So the graduate assistant pokes his head into a room, and I hear him say, coach, we have about a six-foot-five receiver here who uh, wants to talk to a wide receiver coach. And both Urban Meyer and the wide receiver coach came marching out And I didn't realize how intimidating this man was at all until I sat in that office for the first time. So I sat in that office and he's like, so what's your story? And I'm like stuttering. I had a hat on backwards, you know, and he's like, take that hat off. Like he was all about, you know, having respect. And so take my hat off. And he's like, what are you doing here? I'm like, here's my film. 
I play at Snow College. I qualify. I can leave right now. I don't. I just want to play for the University of Utah. And at that time, I had a couple big schools really recruiting me though because I did put together you know some film. Kansas State was one of them, and I was like, I have an opportunity to probably go to Kansas State, but I'd really want to play for you. So he put my film in right then and was watching it in front of me, and I had this crazy knockout block and he kind of stopped the film he's like if you block like that I don't care if you catch one pass but you'll play for me and that's not really what I wanted to hear I wanted to score touchdowns and and catch the ball but um he's like I'll tell you what I'm going to keep this film I'm going to talk to your coaches find out a little bit more about you and we'll be in touch so over the next couple weeks we were back and forth back and forth one day I got a text from him and he said can you come up to the offices this weekend and I said sure so I went into the office um he he sat down and looked at me from across the table for what's what looked like what seemed like an eternity for me for the listeners like he's the most intimidating guy I've ever met if he calls me to this day I look at the phone it says coach Urban Meyer and I wonder if I should answer or not you know because he'll still intimidating even on a phone call but back then I was sitting in this chair and he looked at me and said, so do you want to play for the University of Utah? And I said, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's why I'm here. He stood up, shook my hand, said, congratulations, you're a Ute. He's like, I'm going to walk you down. We're going to enroll you in classes and um, I expect you to be here Monday to work out with the team. So I didn't know if I got a scholarship. I didn't know, you know what happened, but I called my father, was like, I'm going to play for the University of Utah. I just talked to Urban, shook his hand. And my dad's question was, did he give you a scholarship? And I was like, I was like, I don't know. I was too afraid to ask and I was too excited, but I, I promise I'll ask next week or something. So had no idea how I was going to pay for school. A week later, I knocked on his door timidly and was like, Hey coach, uh, I'm just wondering, you know, do I have a scholarship or am I walking on? I don't know what the deal is. And he said, look, you don't have enough film. I promise you, if you play for me, I'll give you a scholarship, but you're going to have to earn it. And I said, cool, good enough. You know, I didn't know how I was going to pay for school. So I took out a student loan and just went all in. So that's how I ended up there. That's crazy. And, and what was that like during that time? Right. I, I get to see another side of, of Urban Meyer, right? Like I've had meetings or interactions or been in events with him. And what I would say is this, he's got this look of intensity, right? I don't know the, any of that side. I don't want to claim that I know what he's like in the locker room or what it's like to play for him. But even like when he shakes your hand and he looks at you, like, if he wanted to, it's like his eyes would have laser beams that could just literally slice right through you. It, it's the most, from a physical stature, right, we're both taller, bigger, stronger individuals, but that presence of how he fills up a room, right, the post-show interviews don't do anything to really show what what that man is like. So what was it like playing for him? Like, what were your stats? Did you Did you graduate? What did you graduate in? Like, I'm just generally fascinated with this story up to this point, John. Yeah, I got a really good story about Urban, and this is kind of he was he was probably thirty six or thirty seven years old back then, so like my age now. But he commanded this leadership and intensity that I can't even explain. We were we were scared. We were scared. The first year he was here, about twenty guys on scholarship quit, just gave up their scholarship. He used to lock us in that weight room, and the weight strength coaches would beat the shit out of us, and it was the most intense thing. His whole belief system was if he got enough guys in a room to believe in one thing that other people would join. And so it didn't matter if you were a superstar, there was people who started on the last year squad 
there was an uproar when he came in because he did everything different. And he got a few people to buy in, got rid of everybody else. And that he spoke with such confidence that we were going to be a top five team. Like when he said it the first time, I was like, man, we're the University of Utah. We can be top 25 every once in a while. But he started speaking about, um, it was back when Michigan was good. I remember going to a barbecue at his house. He's like, look, we're going to be top five. We're going to be as good as Michigan. We're going to be, um, we're going to be talked about like those programs. As soon as you guys believe it, you guys have the talent. And I remember looking at guys like scanning around, like we didn't believe it then. But everything that man did and how hard we worked and how prepared we were, it started to come true, man. His first year, we went 10-2. and two. We lost two games. One of the games was against Texas A&M at Texas A&M. So in front of 100,000 people, I was a, a second stringer going in because I barely got to the team. And he, um, our second game of the year was in Texas at Texas A&M. I was, I was wondering if I was going to travel. I just wanted to see the stadium. So I looked at the travel list and I was like, cool, I'm traveling. Called my family. They're like, well, we're going to go see it. I'm like, don't worry about it. I'm probably not going to play that much, but you know, I'm going to be there. And they're like, we're going to buy, we're buying a flight and we're going down there. So my junior college got about a thousand people to watch the games. So I'm used to playing in front of a thousand people. We get to Texas A&M, there's a hundred thousand people. And I'm at war, I'm out there warming up. It's hot as hell. And I'm like, man, this is awesome. I can't believe that I'm here right now. I'm just happy to be out here. And second quarter, our starting receiver broke his ribs and I'm on the sideline. I hear my name being called and I'm like, holy shit, I'm going in the game. Like this is, this is it. Right. And I got out there, man. I was so scared. I got out there. This game's on ESPN. I see a hundred thousand fans. I can't hear a thing. I messed up probably 10 plays in a row, lining up on the wrong side of the ball. Like I was so nervous. I was like, man, I'm not ready for this. This is the biggest moment of my life. I'm just not ready. We go down at halftime. We're down 28 to zero. And I got like the last couple minutes of, of that half. I sit down in the locker room and Urban comes flying in the locker room. And the whole team's there. We, you know, we're down 28 points, 28 to zero. He comes straight at me and he just starts unleashing his fury on me. And, uh, you know, his, 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 uh, his speech was, there's a hundred thousand people out there who don't give a flying F whether you're scared or not. He could see the fear in me. He's like, and there's another couple hundred thousand watching on T watching on TV that doesn't care if you're scared or not. He's like, all of us in this room are counting on you. And he's screaming at the top of his lungs, using the F bomb, you know, every, every other word. And I just remember feeling so scared, man, so scared. His, his last words were, if I had any other player to put in, I'd put him in, but all I have is you. And I was like, so, Inspiring. so, to, answer your, so to answer your question about um, intensity, man, I was sitting there, sweat dripping off my face, and my, my buddy just taps my leg. He's like, it's all right, man, it's all right. So I was just like, dude, I can't go back in the game. I go back to the guy who broke his ribs. His name was Steven. I'm like, Steven, dude, are you okay, man? Are you going to go back in the game? And he's like, no, man, my, my rib's broken. And I just realized that I had to play in that second half. Like, he was right. We didn't have anybody else. So that game, we make this crazy comeback. We're down 28 to 20. Eight seconds to go. We're on our own 40-yard line. And I'm supposed to just run this clearing route right down the field to get somebody open on the sideline so we had one more play. Find myself wide open for whatever reason. 
I catch a ball with zero seconds in the end zone, a 60-yard bomb. So now we're down 28 to 26. We go for two. We don't get it. But I finished the game with two catches, 95 yards, and a touchdown for my first ever big college experience after I just got ripped on in, at halftime. So um, that, was, that was my entrance into college football. And Urban Meyer made me feel like I was the worst player in the whole entire world. I just shared that story with him and he was cracking up. He's like, I remember that day. He's like, you were so scared. I was like, dude, I was so scared. I was, I was shitting my pants out there. So yeah, um, pretty amazing, man. That is amazing. So after that, that initial endeavor, right. Playing the whole season, you had a full three seasons with the Utes or do you go four? Three seasons. That was my sophomore year. My junior year, Alex Smith was a quarterback. We went undefeated. We were the first ever BCS busting, um, we, we were in the Mountain West back then, not the Pac-12. So that was when we were in the Mountain West. We were the first ever BCS busting team to get into the Fiesta Bowl. We were undefeated with three other teams um, and ended up, because we weren't in a major conference, we, we ended up ranked fourth in the nation, just like Urban said from the day he got there, man. Um, and I truly believe it was Auburn, USC. They were the other two teams undefeated. But I truly believe, like, I, we wanted a shot to play one of those guys. I've never seen a team that came together so much. That was Urban's last year before he moved on to Florida. Um, and then I played one more season after that my senior year. But, yeah, we won the Fiesta Bowl, went undefeated, ended up ranked fourth in the nation. And, and all, of Ur, all of Urban's, you know, speech and, and what he truly believed from day one came true, man. It's crazy what that power belief really does, right? You've, you've, between your ability to fight adversity – Right, your ability to start building up some self confidence, and that ability to believe in what's possible. Right, to I call it paint that possibility. Right, we're all in this process of progress, and you're literally just mapping out this entire. What at that point you're 21, 22. Like the first twenty two years of your life have been just this story backing up what it is that I share every day for the past three hundred plus days. Yeah. I love yeah, it. I, I try to re, I try to reconstruct it sometimes, man, and like think of how I actually made it. I just never quit. I never quit. And you know, playing for Urban, he's he's just seeing a leader like that, you know, like getting other people to buy in. Like there's other coaches who are just as smart X's and O's. It's not like he's a genius X's and O's guys. What he is is a genius motivator. And he inspires he inspires the team. Sometimes through fear, sometimes through you know, not, not that tactic, but what he does is have every single person in the room believing that we're just as good as, as the giants out there. You know, the, it's like David versus he'll, he'll play, he'll play on whatever can motivate you. Me personally, he knew that if he never said a nice thing about me, it motivated me to try to get him to compliment me one time. Right. And he wouldn't treat everybody the same other guys he would treat differently, but he got every ounce of, ability and talent out of every single person in the room and he created this belief and i'll never forget that in in business and in life i i truly look to his example and and try to put it into practice every day well and john as we talk about putting it into practice as you get into that senior year you've had a great career right you notoriety and i think you shared with me really probably a top you're you're slighted to be one of the top five picks as far as a wide receiver goes in the NFL draft, right? You you went from junior college to fast forward really two and a half, three years, and all of a sudden you're being talked about on ESPN as being a top recruit. 
yeah, in the Fiesta Bowl, in the Fiesta Bowl, I scored a touchdown. So that was kind of my coming out party on national TV. And there was a publication, Mel Kuyper Jr., one of the top analysts. He came out with uh, his publication and had me at top five, top five wide receivers for the next year's class. My phone started ringing with NFL agents, you know, saying, hey, you know, I want to represent you. So I passed them on to my dad, let him kind of sort through all those guys. So going into my senior year, I had a lot of hype. We came off a great year as a team. Urban left. Um, we, Alex Smith went to the, to the NFL, obviously, as a first pick. So we lost our quarterback. And we ended up going uh, seven and five. So it wasn't, a, it wasn't a great year. But personally, I had 55 catches, six or seven touchdowns, and was stringing together 100-yard performances in a row. And so everything was culminating into me you know, being a top round draft pick, man. And MTV Cribs was going on back then. So I was falling in love with thinking, I was like, man, how am I, where am I going to live? What kind of car am I going to drive? Like, I'm going to have a million dollars in a couple months, you know, and I'm just a 22 year old kid. So I started thinking about all that stuff and all in one instant, three games to go, I broke my leg. So I went from being an undraft, I went from being for sure drafted high to a guy that might not be able to play again. Uh, never got to run at the NFL Combine. Nothing. My leg was broken. That's crazy. So, John, you you eventually, I'm sure, have to go through rehab, right? You're rehabbing through the end of the season and probably for months thereafter. Mm-hmm. Draft comes up. You're not at the draft. You're not. Are you even draft eligible? Like, did you even try? I was. I was draft eligible. I was draft eligible for sure. But my agent was like, "There's no chance you're getting drafted. So don't even watch the draft." But I did. I watched every pick. I watched DBs going, you know, getting drafted in, you know, the third and fourth rounds that, you know, had me one-on-one coverage and I tore them up for, you know, 150 yards and touchdowns. And I remember just watching that happen and being so, so upset about it, man. So the draft come and went and I didn't get drafted. And so how do you go from being undrafted? Is your leg still in the cast when you're watching the draft or are you out of the cast? No, I, I was out of the cast. This, so the draft's kind of, the draft's in May. So I had barely started like really running and being able to kind of play football. So um, draft came and went. I remember the last pick. My agent said, the, he's like, the Oakland Raiders are going to take you if they don't select the wide receiver in the draft. He's like, so that's where you're going. He's like, that's where you're going to go. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of stuff going on, like, during leading up to the draft where I kind of knew that I was going to go somewhere, but he said, if they don't take a wide receiver, so what does Oakland do? The very last pick of the draft, the very last pick I'm watching it. They hadn't taken a wide receiver. They take a wide receiver with the very last pick. Mr. Irrelevant was a wide receiver out of Maine. And so then I'm like, well, what does that mean? You know, they just took a wide receiver. It was the last pick. So I remember looking at my dad and he's like, what does that mean? I'm like, I don't know. Like we kind of got in an argument. Like, I don't, what do you mean? I don't know what it means, you know? So I'm like, I'm going to go take a shower. We had a party planned with my aunts and grandparents and friends. I didn't even want to go. I was, you know, I, w- I was like, now I don't know what's going to happen. So I got in the shower, got out, my phone rang and it was the Oakland Raiders. And they said, Hey, you know, we, we want you to come out as an undrafted guy. We have a $5,000 signing bonus bonus for you and a plane ticket to come out um, next week for minicamp. And I said, cool, let's do it. 5,000 bucks and a plane ticket. Well, I love that, John. I'm going to ask what feels like an intimate question for me, a personal question, but it's sheer morbid curiosity. If it doesn't hit you the right way, please don't feel obligated. 
but you you essentially walk onto the Raiders, right? I mean, for for lack of a better term, that's what it feels like to me. You get the five thousand dollars signing bonus, which is somewhat laughable, right? From, from oh, yeah. the perspective that we have for business now. Yeah. You go through and you get selected, right? You get a roster spot. That first contract you got your first year, does that like I think NFL and I'm like, oh, everybody's a millionaire. That's probably not the was that the case for you on your on your first first contract? I, I thought I was a millionaire. No, so so about that. So I got the five thousand dollars and that was like coming from college. That was like holy, you know, holy shit. And undrafted. So there's about a hundred guys. I think they carry about ninety to a hundred guys throughout the offseason, through mini camps and stuff like that. So opening day roster is only 52. So 50 guys on each team is going to be jobless, right? Um, and they cut guys all the way through mini camps leading up to training camp and then the final day roster spot. So it was literally a tryout, just like you said. I, w- I was there. I was, I was, you know, had a, had a practice squad roster basically for all of training camp. But I made opening day roster. And every year on every NFL team, there's probably one undrafted guy per team, maybe two, in a w- really rare situation, three, sometimes zero, um, that will make opening day roster from an undrafted spot. And the reason being is the team's not invested in you. So if they choose guys ahead of you and they give them that $500,000 $500, signing bonus, if they're picked in the top four rounds, like they have to really screw up to not get one of those roster spots. So um, about one to two guys every year on every team will take one of those spots. And I was, I was the only guy in Oakland that year who made opening day roster from an undrafted spot. So um, back then in 2006, minimum salary was 275 grand. So 275, but it's divided, it's divided in 17 week pay periods. So you get paid per game. And so the checks were huge, you know, taxes was killing me, but I didn't care because I was making, you know, these checks after taxes were 10 grand a pop every single week. Mm-hmm. And I just remember those things stacking up thinking, holy shit, man, I'm rich. Like I'm, I'm more than rich. Right. So yeah. I made 275 that year and then got a bonus after the season. Cause I played quite a bit as a rookie. They call it a player performance bonus where after the season, I got a check for 150,000 all in one. And I mean, it, it's just kind of a surreal thing at 23 years old, man. Like, yeah. I started going to Vegas with my buddies and partying and, you know, yeah, I, I wasn't buying a ton of dumb stuff, but I definitely didn't know how to, how to grow money at all. So, you know, at 23, bro, we don't have a lot of tools. No, I'm, I'm glad I'm not the only one, right? I did, certainly didn't go to the NFL, but I share very openly as, as my professional career went through its ebbs and flows, right? I got to a point where I was making 40 to 70 grand a month, right? But I, I didn't have anybody in my life that was trying to guide me in a direction. Like all the guys I was associating with were also making that sort of income, if not higher. And so it was always this, I laughingly say, like a dick measuring contest. It's like, okay, well, this weekend we're going to Miami. Sure, I'll pay for everybody first class. And next week it's, well, no, we're going to go to New York and I'll pay for the private jet. And then it's like, okay, well, then I'm, like it was just craziness everywhere. So I'm glad I'm not the only one, right? I'm, I'm glad there were a couple stories that you have that maybe there was some money you wish you would have had back at this point. Maybe. Dude, I mean, I, I, I think about it. I had some really expensive nights sometimes at nightclubs and, you know, rolling up a $5,000 tab. Not all the time, right? But some some of those moments I wouldn't give back for anything because it, it just, you know, I look back and kind of smile because it's probably not the smartest thing, but I got to experience things that I, I think that, you know, most people would really want to experience. And so I, I, I was 
I say I was decent with my money. Obviously, I made a ton of mistakes, but I don't regret any of it. So, so John, only because you brought it up, do you remember what your your most decadent bar tab was? Like, what what's what's the biggest one? So my biggest one was in Hollywood, and I was with a couple a couple of the NFL guys, and we took turns buying tables. And this particular night, I can't remember what the club's name was. I don't know if it's even there yet, but um, we were buying bottles. We were all walking around with our own bottle of Patron, and you know. Not, not even pouring it, just holding our own bottles. And so that was about $5,000. And I woke up so hungover, took out the receipt because I couldn't even see what I signed the night before. You know, and you have this little feeling when you're hungover, like it's not the best feeling in the world, but it was one of the, one of the funnest times of my life as far as going out on one night. I still remember the guys and how much fun we had. So, so now, man, I, I think it's funny and I, I think that it was a good time, but, um, I didn't do that all the time. That wasn't an all the time thing. It was maybe a once a year thing. I was, to be quite honest, I was always on the bubble. So I felt like I had to keep making the team every single year. So I was really scared of, of losing what I had. I never was comfortable. I was living in an apartment. I didn't have the NFL, you know, the MTV crib. I bought a Chrysler 300, made it look like a Bentley. So I didn't blow money on a ton of dumb stuff. Because I always was in a suitcase, man. I didn't know when my last day was going to be. In the NFL, every Tuesday is a day off. And the GM and all the coaches are working out guys that, who are quote-unquote on the street who aren't on a roster. And as soon as one of those coaches think that there's somebody else that can do your job better than you, like you're gone, man. You, you are gone. I'd go in on Tuesdays and I'd see tight, see tight ends um, working out with the, with the scouts and the GM. And I'm like, they can, they can cut me at any time. And, and ultimately in my third year that happened. Um, I walked into, to the, to the locker room. One of the guys was like, Hey John, I saw, I saw a tight end wearing your number out there today. Um, trying out. And the dude was, he wasn't, he was just like making a joke, locker room talk. Like, and I was like, Oh yeah. You know, and I was kind of struggling at that point with my confidence. I, I wasn't feeling great. I went in, got my ankles taped and uh, came back in. I got tapped on the shoulder, had a meeting with the coach and got let go. So all in one day, man, it was everything I had was was gone because they found some other guy who thought, who they thought could do a better job than me. So, John, was was that still at the Raiders? Is that was you you progress over to the Browns, right? Is, where, where was that no, in your career? Was, so so my yeah, my third year, I got cut. So my I got cut by the Raiders. I got let go for two weeks. The guy who they signed didn't pan out. So then they asked me back. So then I finished out the season all the way until the last two weeks of the season, I got cut again. And then, um, Cleveland picked me up. So I flew out to Cleveland to finish the season. And, uh, then ultimately Cleveland cut me my fourth year. So I got, I got cut three times. It was the only three times in my life. I really got cut, man. And that first one hurt really, really bad. That first one really hurt. Um, by the third time I, I had gotten used to it. You know, it's just, it's the nature of the beast, man. I, the one mistake, the one mistake that I made in the NFL, I, and I truly believe this, and I hope it doesn't sound arrogant or, or anything like that. The talent isn't, isn't the greatest separator. You have, I played with guys like Randy Moss and Warren Sapp, Hall of Famers. The outliers are the best athletes in the world. They're just on a different level. So I'm not saying that I'm that. Everybody else is very close talent wise. If you're there, like the only thing that's separating the all pros to the second and third stringers is this 
is this belief in themselves, right? This, this confidence that I talk about. And I got to the NFL and I, it was my dream. So I feel like I, I reached my dream, but I didn't set the bar high enough. Like I wish now that if I have a regret that I, I set the bar a little higher to be all pro to, to win a Super Bowl or whatever, because I know without a shadow of a doubt that the ability portion for me wasn't why I got cut. Like I, the NFL was kind of a big stage for me and I didn't truly know that I truly belonged and could become an all-star. And looking back and looking at the guys that I played with, they weren't, they weren't more talented than me. They were some of the guys that are still playing who have 10 and 12 year careers. They just believed in in themselves more. And that sounds weird, me making it to that level, but there's still another level after every level. And I didn't, I didn't know how to tap into that back then. Right now, I believe that I do know how to do that. Um, but back then, I didn't have the tools. Well, John, that's so impactful. I mean, that's again, it, it seems like you and I will inevitably continue a friendship way after this podcast because our mindsets are almost running in parallel where I believe in what I call a challenge-based lifestyle, right? If, if you're not setting those goals that scare the living daylights out of you, like I have no idea how I'm going to achieve what I want to achieve just in the next 90 days, right? I believe in breaking this up. Sure, we can look five years ahead or three years ahead, and that, that's all well and good, but there's so many pivots that can come between now and then. I'm, I'm searching for that, but I know it's got to push. Like The 90-day version of me has to scare the living daylights out of me in order to get me to rise to the, the occasion, right? If we just sit that back, it sounds like with that level of, I don't say complacency, right? It's funny to say to somebody that played in the NFL that you got complacent with achieving your goal, but it's almost like that's what, I, that's what I'm hearing. It's like you quote unquote made it, right? And you, that was where it stopped. It's like, okay, I'm here and then I don't have anywhere else to go. Right, 100%, man, 100%. And um, yeah, that, that, that absolutely happened and I try not to, I try to use that example in, in today's business, you know, and, and I had, a, I've had a lot of, I've had a lot of reaching bottom too, that, um, you know, a lot of people may not know, but after my NFL career was over and I was cut, I had $300,000 in the bank. You know, I still thought that that was a ton of money. I was 27 years old. Um, I, I had this thing where, again, I, I never asked for permission to, to do something. And so I went straight into business. I was like, man, I'm going to open up a gym. I'm going to train athletes. And, you know, why wouldn't people come to train with me? I'm a, I'm a former NFL guy who made it, right? So I built this gym, spent a lot of money, kind of with the fill the dreams philosophy. If I build it, they will come. No grand opening, open the doors. I was like, cool, where's the customers? You know, where, where are they at? And uh, after, a, after a home purchase and then the gym purchase and then, just living off the money that I had and spending that money on business 16 months later, man, that went to zero. Like I, I had zero, I had zero dollars. Like, and I was the most terrifying thing about that for me was actually not the zero part. It was wondering what was going to happen. Like I was fearful of it. So the fear leading up to that kind of manifested itself into that happening. And, you know, I party a lot. I partied a lot. I tried to validate myself with, things outside of football because all my friends and everybody who knew me was that John, that's the guy who made it. You know, he, he played in the NFL. Like he didn't have a scholarship. He made it all the way. And without football and a lot of athletes, you know, a lot of athletes struggle with this. And I, I, I feel it because they turn to drugs and they turn to alcohol and they turn to women and a whole bunch of stuff because they need some sort of validation without the, the identity that they had their whole entire lives. And 
my identity as an NFL player was gone, but I was like, I'm still, I'm still me. So I had to prove, I had to prove to whoever, you know, whoever these people were that I was still cool enough or I could still do whatever. So I'd still spend money. I drank a lot. Um, you know, I partied a lot and I just kind of spiraled all the way down to the zero. And, uh, my business, I had to shut the doors. I had to shut the doors one weekend, um, sold all my equipment for pennies on the dollar. I was going to job interviews where I was like, I need to make some money. So I was like, I had one relationship that I was in, um, um, you know, fiance that, that was, that came to an end during this period too. Um, so I had a failed relationship. My NFL identity was gone and my money was going away. And I was going to these job interviews with this, this girl that I was dating at the time. Um, she's now my wife and you know, the mother of my beautiful daughter. She's like, what's going on? I was just holding all this inside. She had no idea. She had no idea that I was like going to zero shutting down business because I made these decisions really quickly. She's like, Oh, he's just shutting down and re, you know, reorganizing his life and this stuff. But I was going to internet, you know, um, insurance sales type jobs and suiting up and, you know, landed every interview that I, that I went to, but it, like, it was her who was like, don't take those jobs. Like you gotta, you gotta follow your passion, your passion. You're not that. And so I still, I'm so thankful for her to, you know, believe in me enough to, to push me into a decision that I know was right because I was almost just going to be, you know, a whatever, you know, not, not that any of those jobs are bad, but it just wasn't me. So I had to regroup, man. It wasn't all, it wasn't all gravy after I played in the NFL. There was a lot of, a lot of stuff I had to work through. John, you're just, it's like, I'm speaking to my long lost brother. Like yeah. I, I had the money from all the stuff I did. I had exited a company, had a couple hundred grand in the bank. One thing leads to another. It's December 20th. I'm closing the doors to my business. I don't have any assets to sell. My bank account's at a literally a negative balance. I just started dating at that point who is now my wife. And she's like, look, basically I got us for a couple, a couple months, right? She had a little bit of cash saved up herself. She goes, I don't, I don't at that point I probably didn't deserve it from some of the stuff I put her through with, with some of the infidelity and things that way. Um, but she was the one that kept tapping me on the shoulder. Like you're better than this. Like, don't, don't give up on this. Don't go the other direction. Like this is in you just keep building, just keep building. And it's so, it's so inspiring to me to hear that story almost mirrored back, right? Where. I don't know. It's always unique to say it's inspiring when we're both broke, right? But it's, it's super humbling to over the course of a year. For me, it was uh, a little bit over a year, right? To have all this cash in the bank, a couple cars, a couple you know houses, all the fun stuff. To like, oh well, my truck's getting repossessed this Tuesday because I can't make the payment, and I'm almost about to lose the rental properties because I've been living off that income to not want to show anybody that I didn't have any money, like, and not paying mortgages. It was this really unique situation that has led me to here for me, which we all know what that is, but I'm, I'm curious about where is here for you now? Like what is, you've been through so much. What are you doing now? Yeah. You know, I, I have this entrepreneurial spirit and you know, I, I feel like I'm kind of unemployable. Like I, I like to make my own rules and um, I've been, I've been doing this gym thing for a long time and, and you know, I, I still like, there's moments where I'm like, still, I don't know if I have it figured out. Right. Like I, I, I'm not there yet. Um, I know that I have huge dreams, huge, huge aspirations, and I'm not going to make the mistake that I made before. And that's thinking that I got there when I'm there. Like I want to push and I want to keep pushing and I want to keep creating and I want to keep building a legacy. And so 
for me, like I have an in-person gym where we have about 200 members. It's mostly general pop now, but I'm training NFL athletes and, you know, high, high caliber athletes. That's the only like physical training I'm doing. But um, recently launched an online coaching program because so many people was reaching out and they needed help with fitness. And that's, that's kind of my lane right now, health and fitness and helping people, whether they want to get completely shredded or, um, you know, they have 50 pounds to lose. Like I'm helping high performers in that online space has kind of taken off. So I look at myself as, as a coach and somebody who's building a business around my passion. Physical, physical location is awesome because I can take just a group in, a, in our community and try to make make it better, you know, make people healthier and make them believe a little bit more. But I'm really, truly passionate about diving in one-on-one with somebody. And if they're truly looking to transform their lives, my, my pathway is fitness and nutrition. As you know, that kind of blends into other areas, but um, that's the transformation that I take them through. And that, that part's going really, really well. Now, um, is that where I'm going to end? Absolutely not. Like I, I want to build big time business. I want to network with people who have the same mindset as me and I want to keep growing. And my wife is, she's a superstar. She's, she's a female version of, of kind of what I just described. And she, she is on my team. You know, we push each other. And I think that that's super important in relationships. We're both very growth mindset and, uh, we want to go big, man. We want to, we, you know, and that's not just money, but it does include money. I have no problem saying that it's, we want to build big business. We want to impact a lot of people and we want to leave a legacy. So that's what we're going to do. Well, John, it's just so inspiring. And it's, it's inspiring because not only are you the one that's, I'll say in the ivory tower, right. And instructing people how to live a, a more holistically optimized life as I refer to it. But just like Rogaine, what you're not—you're not only the founder, you're also a customer. Like you just went through in the past eight weeks, putting your your money where your mouth is, and you've completely transformed your body, right? Yeah. It's not what, what what's that been like? Well, dude, you know having having a baby, and I didn't have a baby. My my wife would slap me if if I took credit for that. You know, she women go through a ton. Like I, I have so much respect for women and giving birth, and you know she went through oh two years of IVF treatments and you know, injecting hormones into our body. So like my, my excuse is nothing compared to like what she went through, but you know, there's a lack of sleep and a whole lifestyle change that happens when you become a father. And so my fitness kind of went on the back burner for a little bit. Not that I stopped working out. I just stopped eating the way that, that I should have and you know, my whole background and that's what I do. And so I just felt like, you know what, like for my gym and for my people, I got to lead from the front. And so I made a decision going into 2019 and I'm not a big resolution guy, but I, I like, I like a starting point. And so for me, I, I promised myself and my wife, like I'm going to go all in, in all areas of my life. One what on during the fasting that, that we were talking about, talking about before the podcast, I had this mental clarity and I was reading a book and I was listening to a podcast and then someone sent me a text all in the same day when I have this like immense mental clarity from not eating for 36 hours. And the quote, the quote that caught my attention that I've heard a million times was how you do one thing is how you do everything. And it just was ringing through my ears. Like I was meant to hear that message finally and listen to it. And you know, I'm not the most organized person. And so I was like, man, I got to organize a bunch of stuff. And part of that is if I'm going to be this leader and lead, lead this movement, 
I'm not just going to be fit. Like I could walk around and people would be like, you know, John's fit, you know, that he's, he's 90 percentile fitness. I'm like, I'm going to be, I'm going to go all the way and I'm going to be completely 100% shredded and walk around my best all year round. And I'm going to go all in on my financial situation and my relationship all the same, because how you do one thing is how you do everything. And so I just went all in and, and made a decision. And so over the last eight weeks, man, I, I had a photo shoot yesterday and I wanted to look really, really good in. And the photos turned out phenomenal. I'll post some on Instagram, but I just did it, man. I made a decision and went all in and, and it's manifesting in other areas of my life, just like I thought I thought it would. Well, certainly. And I saw your lovely wife slathering you with coconut oil. Yeah, <laughs> right? yeah, I did watch that. Yeah. yeah, I did. I did watch that. It's coming from the bodybuilding world, right? I'm used to having. Uh, I mean, for me, it was always strangers, right? Rubbing oils all over me. It was. It was super cool to see her, you know, laughing around, uh, being a, an active participant in what you guys were doing. Yeah, 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 dude. And I'm, I'm kind of an introverted extrovert too. Like I can turn it on, but like the cameras don't always make me feel super comfortable. And she's, she's all about the camera. So. I, I haven't even checked what she put on Instagram and stuff, but I, yeah, there was, there was her lathering me up with coconut oil. So it was a good time. So if, as you're listening or someone's listening to the show, John, if they wanted to reach out to you, connect with you, see your transformation, see what you stand for, what are some ways they can get a hold of you? Probably the best and just not to confuse anybody is just go to Instagram, John Madsen official. And the reason is I have johnmadsen.com is getting redone because I'm launching a podcast this week. So if they go there, they're not going to see anything. But John Madsen official on Instagram, you know, direct message, comment. I mean, whatever, you know, whatever you, I, I'd love for you to follow me and uh, they can kind of get directed from there when the podcast is launching so that they can hear some of my thoughts. And I'm going to try to stay pretty close to health and fitness in that kind of lane, branching out a little bit, obviously, but giving people value there and just really turning my Instagram page prior to this point. I'm still really authentic. So you're going to see a lot of pictures of my baby and things that I'm really proud of. I'm not trying to make the page like a website that's, you know, beautifully done and completely orchestrated. You're going to see real John Madsen life. And, um, you know, I don't have thousands and thousands of followers because it really hasn't been that important to me, but it is important as far as building a business. And so I, I hope people can see through some of the authenticness that comes from me just being me and hopefully get inspired by some of that stuff. Well, John, what's the podcast going to be called? Because there's a good chance by the time this airs, by the time you're listening to this, I know John's podcast will be out because I know where he's at in the approval process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're almost there, man. Home stretch. So it's called The Show. And this name really popped out to me because growing up, The Show represented the big leagues, right? Major, if you, if you went to The Show, that was the big leagues. And uh, what I wanted to represent because, you know, playing in the NFL, I, I made it to the show, but the show is your life. The show is everybody's life. It's where you're at right now. You are, no matter where you're at, you're the star role in your life. And so for me, the show is going to represent how to take your life to the next level, how to be the star in your own show. I really want people to wake up to the fact that they're in, they're in control. They have control over their lives. And I want to give them steps and, and strategies and even tactics on how to become that star and how to realize that there's more and how to attack fitness and how to attack life. So the show represents that upper level and uh, the next level. And so I, the, the podcast is all about how to reach the next level. 
Well, John, I'm excited to hear it because just as you're saying how you do one thing is how you do everything, I love the fact you're trying to say right now, like, oh, it'll just be primarily health and fitness. Like, I can already see where this is going. It The first 20 episodes might be health and fitness related, but it's going to branch into everything else, right? It's going to, it's got to branch into business. It's got to branch into relationships. It's got to branch into a, a myriad of spirituality, whatever that means to you, right? Because it's, they're all interconnected. I think this this mindset that we've had for so long that everything's compartmentalized, right? Like I can, I can just go crush it in business and I'll be good there, but your relationship is shit or your body doesn't work or you don't know who God or a higher power creator is, right? I've never seen someone live what feels like a holistically full life. If only one of those four buckets is full, it seems like it takes some water every day being poured into each one. And, and as you keep ascending through life, the buckets just keep getting, I'll say bigger, right? You can put more water and they never get all the way full. So I'm super excited to hear you just share, right? I, I can't imagine it in the little bit of time we spent together, the stories you shared with me, I can't imagine what's going to come out on the show. Well, thank you, man. I, I look up to you and I look to your podcast as an inspiration. I look to you as an inspiration and, uh, yeah, I, I'm kind of nervous about it. Um, you know, I hear a, a seasoned professional like you and I, just like everybody else who probably has an idea to do something it, it's, uh, man, can I really sound like that? Can I do that? And, uh, I just want to lean in and do the best that I can. I, I appreciate the the admiration, John. I'll tell you, when I go two secrets, maybe they're not secrets, but I'll share them openly with you. One, I have never went back and listened to any of my shows ever. I've never when I when I lay down a track, if we'll call it that, when I record, it never touches me again. Somebody else handles the entire process. I don't want to hear any part of it. Two, my listeners have shared with me the first twenty episodes versus the most recent twenty episodes. I'm three versions ahead of who I used to be. Right. So it's all this it's all this process, right? From the quality yeah, prop quality of equipment to the speech patterns to the questions we ask to our delivery. It's all gonna get better with reps, no different than everything else you've been through in life, man. So I, I know you're gonna crush it. I have no fear or no doubt of that whatsoever. Thank you, man. Thank you. That gives me confidence. Thank you. Of course. So John, if you're gonna leave the listeners today with one impactful lesson that they could take to help propel them to the next level of their life, what would it be? I would say don't wait for permission. Don't wait for somebody else to give you the permission to do something that you want to do because nobody's going to ever give you that permission. And if we pull from my own life, it, it's walking into junior college and handing someone a basketball tape to play football. Like that sounds ridiculous. Um, I didn't get invited to go up to speak to Urban Meyer. So when kids are waiting or, you know, I'll use kids in the, as an example because I coach them when they're waiting for an invite to do something, sometimes that invite doesn't ever come. And you're going to have to make it happen on your own. And so that's going to take tremendous amount of confidence. That's going to take tremendous about amount of belief. And more than anything, it's going to take a lot of courage to just do something that I didn't know how it was going to turn out, obviously. But if I didn't walk into those offices and try, there's tons of athletes that were probably more talented than me that never played college sports or never went to the NFL because at some point they listened to other people. They didn't get the invitation, so they stopped trying. And I never did that, man. And, and I use that as an example of my own life and probably the most important life for somebody else. Don't ask for an invite. Don't ask for permission. If you want to do something, just go do it and believe in yourself all the way. John, I appreciate the message. I appreciate the time. I can't imagine a better way to wrap up this show than with that just direct between the eyes, life-changing, life-changing information. I appreciate you, my friend. Thank you so much. Ryan, I appreciate you, buddy. Look forward to talking, okay? Okay. Thanks again. <laughs>